Blog Talk Radio. Ladies and gentlemen of America, tonight is a unique night in the fact we talk a lot on this program about judges in the criminal justice system that simply is getting the job wrong and seem to be having a problem with the God complex. But I'll tell you what, AJC Radio definitely takes a look at both sides. Tonight we take a look and we take a moment to honor judges that rule really from the bench with integrity, those that do their job and uphold the oath. Tonight we specially honor them. Hang on, folks. It starts right now. And there you have it. I'm Lamont Banks, along with Cliff Stewart, Dennis Merritt, and back with us, William Williams. And I'll tell you what, folks, this is going to be a good one. And we find it easy in our society to point out the negative, which you have to, because people have to be held accountable for not doing their job. It doesn't matter whether you're a judge, whether you're a congressman, whether you're the president of the United States, accountability is something that has to happen. And tonight, AJC Radio wanted to take a moment and honor those and, and take a look at judges across this country that really take their job seriously, and they're not there to just sock it to the defendant, to simply rule as a dictator, but really concerned about the problems facing our nation and these defendants in criminal justice proceedings. And I think it's one thing, William, that we have talked about for quite some time uh, as we reflect back on even H. Lee Sarakin, federal retired judge, H. Lee Sarakin, who, was a true, who is a true judge when he was on the bench. He's retired now. But when you really, uh, take a look at his work and his words and what he said and what he stood for, that was something that stood out to us in a very, very big way. Absolutely. You know, the, you have to admire those that are that are willing to say, you know what, I'm, I'm sitting in a position of authority, and I have a responsibility. I have a responsibility to, to potentially change somebody's life, impact, you know, in a positive way. Instead of, like you said, we hear about these judges that are, that are ruling with an iron hand. They just they seem to have no care and no compassion. You have to, we have to have this segment to say, you know what, there are those, like Judge Sarekin, that were willing to step out and say, you know what, this has been the norm, but justice must be served, and that's what their their capacity is. They're there to serve uh, and be fair, and so that's what's critical. Uh, Dennis, your thoughts? And that's true. You know, a, a lot of times, uh, instead of being a referee, instead of uh, making sure that both sides are heard, uh, a lot of times our judges uh, lean toward the uh, prosecution. And, and that could be, and, and that you know, that could cause some someone to be uh, put in prison, uh, you know, wrongfully, uh, you know. And I think that's what a lot of the wrongful uh, convictions are about. Uh, but I tell you, like you said, there are a lot of judges out there that are doing the right thing, and so we we, we don't put them all under the same umbrella. But that judge, I mean, he's got to be one of integrity. He's got to be a referee. He's got to be impartial. He or she, I mean. Uh, and it's all about making sure you listen to both sides of the story and then allow both uh, the prosecution and the defense to present their case. And then let the let the jurors decide and, you know, and give them the information to make that decision. And again, I think tonight's going to be a great show, because, again, when you talked about Judge Serkin, applause to him, hats off to, to that judge, because all I've ever heard about that judge was that he did the right thing. 
And no matter all the decisions he made, he made sure that he was not impartial. No, that's, that's critically important, and we're going to look forward to that. Folks, uh, I'll tell you what, this is something that's, again, that's critically important. Uh, in all, really, works of uh, public service, uh, you're going to have the good, you're going to have the bad. And uh, it's our job to, to play, uh, definitely address both sides of that issue. Uh, I've learned a few things here in El Paso County, uh, here in Colorado Springs, going to the courthouse and, and, and observing judges as they hand out sentences, as they are going through protocol or procedure in the criminal justice process. And I've learned a lot. I've seen a lot uh, in regards that judge, there are some judges here that are troubled uh, to uh, even get involved with, with mandatory minimums that, they, that they're forced to send defendants to, uh, which is a big talking point in Congress right now. Uh, there's just a lot of things. And, and again, we wanted to take a moment and, and honor, and that's what this show is about tonight, to honor judges uh, who sit on that bench and, and implement integrity uh, in, in what they are doing. And we're very, very honored tonight. We're going to be joined um, by uh, uh, federal uh, judge um, Frederick Block will be joining us here uh, shortly on the other side of this break. We have Donna Ham, a former judge. Uh, we have retired Superior Court Judge Michael Heavy. And uh, we have a federal, a former uh, judge, uh, Charles Baird, uh, is going to be also joining us tonight. So we got some really good perspectives that we're going to look at this thing and take a sincere look uh, at what is going on. So, uh, folks, feel free to dial into the show tonight. The, the number is 646-200-0628. That's 646-200-0628. And uh, we're looking forward to that, folks. Hang on. On the other side of the break, we're coming back. Honoring judges with integrity is the topic of this show tonight on AJC Radio. We'll be right back. Good morning, students, and welcome to Career Day. I hope you're excited to hear about all the great things you can do when you grow up. Hi, everyone. I'm Emily. I'm super excited to introduce my dad because he's my hero. When I was little, my dad was away a lot, but I was okay with that because he was doing this really important work, driving ambulances in Iraq. Now he's at home, which is great for me because I get to see him every day now. And he's still the biggest hero I know because he tells all the ambulances and the fire engines where to go and rescue people when they're in an emergency. I'm so proud of him. He's awesome. He's my dad. If your service-connected disability prevents you from continuing in your civilian career, Voc Rehab offers counseling, training with a living allowance, education, and other services to help prepare you for your next mission. Do you know anyone who's been sent to prison who's innocent? The United States is experiencing record numbers of exonerations in cases where people were wrongfully convicted of crimes they did not commit. If you believe that no one should be sent to prison for crimes they didn't commit, there is something that you can do today. By remembering a just cause with a monthly, annual, or one-time donation, you can help in the fight against wrongful convictions. Call a just cause at 855-529-4252 or visit a-justcause.com and click the donate button. A just cause is a 501c3. Wrongful convictions are wrong. Let's be the voice of those who can't speak from behind the wall.
The United States houses more human beings in prisons than any other country in the world. This is true whether you're counting total numbers or in relation to population size. This wasn't always the case. The number of prisoners in the U.S. began to rise dramatically in the 1970s. So what changed in America compared to other countries? While there are several competing theories, a look at the data reveals that a significant part of the prison growth in the last 40 years has been driven by the war on drugs. Here's the data. By 1980, there were over 315,000 prisoners in state and federal facilities. 57% were violent offenders. 30% were property violators, such as thieves or those convicted of fraud. 5.5% of inmates were in for public order and other miscellaneous offenses. And the remaining 7.5% were nonviolent drug law violators. Ten years later, the drug war had grown, and the total American prison population had more than doubled to over 740,000 inmates. The proportion of offenders in each type of crime had also changed dramatically. The most growth occurred in the nonviolent drug offender population, which grew to a significant 24%. And this last statistic actually understates the influence of the drug war on prison populations. Many studies have shown that drug prohibition causes violent crime by leading to the formation of gangs and cartels. And thus, it is safe to say that the number of violent criminals under prohibition is higher than it would otherwise be. From 1990 to 2000, the drug-driven population growth continued. By 2000, the total prison population had almost doubled again to over 1.3 million inmates. And by 2010, the prison population was up to 1.6 million people. The growth has started to settle and even decline in recent years, but the proportions of offenses are retaining their post-1990 levels. America's unique methods of enforcing drug prohibition seem to parallel its unique prison population. And one has to ask, is our country really better off with so many nonviolent drug offenders behind bars? Are drug users likely to be cured from addiction by being locked up? Has locking up dealers and users lessened the demand for drugs? Certainly, the effects on overall usage could not be called a success. And yet we spend billions every year on this war and lock up hundreds of thousands. Surely, there must be a less costly approach to addressing drug use in America. Welcome back in, ladies and gentlemen. This is AJC Radio, where we bring the message of justice all around the world. And tonight, we do a very important thing here as we begin to honor judges who have really uh, done their job from an area of integrity, and they do that job that way every day. We talk on this program a lot about uh, judges that have failed, judges that have simply drop the ball, those that don't, don't really take the oath that they took seriously, but we always know there's, there's really two sides, and you have the good and you have the bad. Tonight, we focus on the good, the judges that really, when they go home probably at night, their job goes with them uh, in thinking of what they must do 
and make the right decision, make the right judgment, I can imagine, uh, Dennis, the awesome responsibility that comes with that type of mindset. But tonight we're going to take a look at some judges that do just that. Exactly. I mean, uh, a judge, is a, that's a powerful position. Uh, it's a position, one that definitely uh, has to have impartiality, uh, must have integrity, and and must and that that person uh, must be honest. I mean, you're, you're talking about, uh, and it depends on what type of judge you are. I mean, you you're talking about some, someone's life, uh, whether they'll receive life or death, or they'll be in put put in prison for life, or they'll spend uh, uh, some time in jail. You know, years away from their family. There's so much involved. Uh, making sure uh, you try to you try to make sure that uh, you referee the courtroom so that the evidence that's present, presented uh, brings out the, the the truthful outcome, and so it takes a lot to be a judge. I mean, I mean, because everybody's you know depending on your ruling and depending on your uh, supervision of that that courtroom. So yeah, you, you're right. It's huge. It's, it's a huge uh, responsibility, and I'm sure a lot of our judges go home. And uh, some of that go with them, you know. But, hey, it's, it's, it's a huge responsibility. No, without question. And uh, in our criminal justice system, because there are folks that, at least, the, the, at least uh, the judges I've listened to, it is given the judge's position can shape a trial from day one. How the judge acts with the jury, what he says to the jury, how he deals with the defendant, how, the defense team, how he deals with the prosecution – tone in and like you said Dennis that is where it becomes very dangerous or good because one way or the other the opinion of those jurors will be shaped that's why it's so important that a judge is impartial that when he sits down on that bench look this is this is what's going on I don't give my personal bias if I have it because that that will whether you believe it or not that that is exactly who uh, the jurors are actually looking at and uh uh, this is this is really really important stuff. We're honored tonight uh, to have this program for this purpose, taking a look at those judges that we believe, uh, and we're going to let them tell tell it as they as they choose to. Right now, we're going to we're honored and privileged uh, to bring on uh, uh, ty, uh, retired federal judge Frederick Block, uh, and we appreciate uh, Mr. Block taking some opportunity, some time with us, Judge, uh, to talk to us tonight. Thank you for joining us. Uh, so, Lamont, uh, I want to apologize uh, in two respects before we do anything else. I went to the dentist this afternoon, and it didn't turn out well. And I probably sound like I've been drinking, but I want to assure you that while my mouth is swollen and I'm staggering to talk to you, I am as sober as a judge. The show must go on, and I did not cancel out, though I probably should have. Thank you for inviting me. Well, you sound you sound fine to me, Judge, uh, and I'm sorry whatever happened today didn't go well, uh, but we'll, we'll do our best definitely not to hold you long, and uh, uh, be respectful. We're okay. Of, okay. We're, we appreciate we're, that. Want, I, I like to sound like as good as you, but I don't sound as articulate as you tonight. So we'll just have to you know beg your forgiveness if you would be kind enough to do that. I, I want to also, if I can, Lamont, disabuse you about one thing. I am not a retired judge, and I can understand why you might think so, because I'm officially a senior federal judge, and when people see senior, we like to think people will say it means you're just wiser and older, but not necessarily retired. 
In fact, I'm busier than ever before. I'm a full-time sitting federal court judge in Brooklyn, and I'm a part-time circuit court of appeals judge in the Ninth Circuit as well. So uh, it's understandable why when you see senior judge, you might think that the judge is retired, but that's not necessarily the case. I actually working harder than I ever did before. I just thought I'd let you know about what that word senior judge means. No, I appreciate that, and uh, that, that's, uh, that's our mistake there. But, uh, Judge, we are honored that you, you took a few moments with us tonight. Um, we've been talking about issues uh, here at AJC, uh, a number of issues dealing with judges that have uh, some that have been, I guess, that have been impeached by members of Congress, those that have uh, brought, in my opinion, uh, shame to the system through process or through their decisions sometimes and through blatant error uh, that has happened where it looks like, man, does, do these judges care? Uh, I'm aware that as yourself, uh, and I appreciate your work and, 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 and what you will really bring to our communities and, and to this nation as a result of your hard work that you just mentioned. Let me ask you a question, Judge. And I'm, everybody sees a lot of things. And I want to get your perspective. As you look at the criminal justice system, we talk about mass incarceration. We talk about uh, misconduct. We talk about what, is go- what has gone wrong with our system that America has the highest population of incarceration in the entire world. Uh, we talk about judges ruling from the bench with honor. Uh, what do you think our issues are and the challenges that we face from that point of view as far as our judges today? Well, Lamont, you, you hit a couple of triggers here, which, you know, are very dear to me. And uh, we can talk about it. A lot of this I wrote about it in my recent book, which I want to plug, called Race to Judgment, because in it we talk about a couple of really important issues, which uh, I think, uh, you know, we should be uh, sensitive to. Mass incarceration, for sure. I wrote a decision a year or so ago called Nesmith versus the United States, where I talked about collateral consequences as a consequence of mass incarceration, that people, when they get out of jail, you know, don't realize that they're still being punished, and we have to really pay more attention to the fact that there are over a thousand collateral consequences in our country after somebody does their jail time and is uh, supposedly uh, resurrecting their lives. That's just wrong, wrong-minded. And the other big issue is wrongful convictions. I think that's probably why you asked me to be on your show tonight. But I don't want to hog the time. You probably have a lot of questions to ask. But I do think that those are two particular issues which concern me during the 23 years I've been a federal court judge. Okay. And Judge Block, please, uh, no, your insight to what you're talking about, you're not in any way infringing on this show. We want your perspective uh, on, on the things that concern you. Go ahead and tell us a little bit about the wrongful conviction that, that troubles you. All right. So, you know, I, uh, I am a federal judge in Brooklyn, and uh, over the last few years, under the prior administration in the state district attorney's office in Brooklyn, there have been no less than 24 uncovered wrongful convictions. You can identify with that. And it's a scandal. And it's something which animated me to write this book, which I candidly am telling folks I love them to look at it, Race to Judgment, because in it, we tell the story. It's a reality fiction book. It's a pretty cool book. You'll never guess the ending. Nobody has yet. And it's a fun read. But 
It's based upon things that have happened in my courtroom. Number one, the Jabbar Collins case, which got national attention. He was the first one who was uncovered to have been wrongfully convicted in Brooklyn a few years ago. He was in jail for 16 years. And basically because the prosecutor didn't turn over exculpatory material, basically that the main witness said that he lied and Jabbar had nothing to do with this murder at all. And that's what animated me. I had that case, and I wrote about it. And I was so taken by it. Jamal is now free. He's going to be part of a program in New York City, which I'll be participating in this week. He served his time. But that triggered an investigation into the old DA's office, which uncovered prosecutorial misconduct. And I wrote about it, and apparently that's what caught your attention. I wrote about whether or not prosecutors should be absolutely immune from, you know, accountability. They have absolute immunity. I think it's wrong. The Marshall Project, I think, wrote it, uh, published that article I wrote. I guess it came to your attention, and I guess that's why I'm talking to you folks right now. I hope that doesn't burden you to a fault, but I'm from Brooklyn, so I talk fast. No, no, no. <laughs> You're doing fine, Judge. Uh, and I'll tell you what, um, race to judgment. Ladies and gentlemen, go out and get this book. Uh, when you talk about Judges speaking out uh, about these things, and that's what I respect so much about you, Judge, to say, look, we, we, saw, we can't act like uh, we turn our heads and act like it didn't happen. What I respect about you and what you say uh, is the fact that these are, this, this is not a fairy tale or a book uh, for entertainment. This is a book that talks about true situations in Judge, uh, Judge Block's courtroom. That is where people can identify with things in the real life situation and understand, wow, this actually happened. Uh, so your perspective on that is, is, is definitely appreciated. How do well, we get... Well, to... yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. oh, go ahead. Now go you ahead, go for it. Okay. I was going to uh, say that, they were, that, that when, when I write, I've written a prior book called This Road, an inside look at the life and work of a federal trial judge to bring to the public some more awareness of what goes on behind the robe, so to speak, right? And there are two schools of thought. One, that judges should be quiet as mice and never be heard from, except in their decisions and what they do in the court. And then there's an emerging school of thought, which I'm a part of, that says, no, that's wrong-minded. Judges know a lot. Like, obviously, you know, you read my book, I know a lot. And I think they right. have an obligation to share their knowledge with the public and not be quiet. So I think that we deal with that dichotomy here, and I think that judges are becoming increasingly more sensitive to the fact that they do have an obligation to share their special knowledge and talk out about issues uh, that come across them during their judicial career to the general public. So I'm of that school. I'm sorry for interrupting you. No, no, no. No, no worries at all, Judge. A question for you uh, in regards to... Uh, how do we change the perspective? You talk about, uh, you know, uh, prosecu- uh, prosecutors being uh, given immunity, uh, not having to deal with uh, consequences uh, of choices because they have this cloak that no one can touch us. Uh, I'm not quite sure how that uh, came into effect in this country, where because if the president is held accountable, supposedly, if our judges uh, are, are held accountable or our uh, our attorneys are held accountable uh, why do we have a break if you will because you're dealing with a human system 
There are going to be people that make mistakes. There are going to be people that are motivated by other things. How do we get rid of this immunity thing and say, look, you know, we say all the time no one's above the law, but cases are getting overturned because of prosecution. Right? So I wrote about that in the article that was published in the Marshall's report, and I spoke about that. Uh, Well, I'm glad they published it. I mean, really, I was very happy about that. And I talked about things that can be done. First of all, uh, if, you have a, if you're a bad prosecutor and you know there are no consequences to bear regardless of what you do, uh, and then, you know, you adopt the ends justify the means. You think somebody's guilty, you don't care. You know, you just don't care about following the law because there's no accountability. That concept has to change. It's an old concept that I think it's run its course and it's seen its better days. Yes, give prosecutors a lot of flexibility. You're not going to hold them into jail all the time for their misdeeds. But if they're outrageous and they don't turn over Brady material, exculpatory material, recantations, that's just no excuse for that. So first we have to say, well, prosecutors can be entitled to immunity, but qualified immunity, not absolute immunity. There comes a line where we have to draw where we're going to say no. We're going to hold these prosecutors in Brooklyn, for example, accountable. Otherwise, the beat goes on and innocent people are sitting in jail. That's one way. The other thing I think that can be done is that uh, they're lawyers, mostly, and there are canons and judicial you know, committees that can bring disciplinary proceedings against people who are licensed to practice law. That was done in Indiana not too long ago where a lawyer uh, was a uh, prosecutor, uh, was suspended from practicing law for four years for inappropriate behavior. I think we can take some responsibility to do more of that. And last but not least, if you don't turn over information that says that this person who's being charged with a crime and whose life is at stake and liberty is at stake, if you don't turn over that information that you know can exonerate that person, if that's an obstruction of justice, then I guess I'm Santa Claus because we don't really hold them accountable. But in an egregious situation where a prosecutor behaves that way, to me that's classic obstruction of justice. The only thing I want to add is that judges do have immunity in terms of if you don't like my decisions, you can appeal me, but you can't get me prosecuted for rendering a decision you don't like. But we do have accountability. We're subject to appellate review. There are grievance committees within the system where you can complain. Is it wonderful? Is it foolproof? No, but I think there is a sense of responsibility and accountability that at least the federal court judges that I know in our system have. I can't speak for every state in the United States. So that's my shorthanded take on what I think has to be done. Okay, Judge. I'm going to play a clip really quick. And, uh, again, we're not going to hold you too long. I want to get your thoughts on this clip. We talk about judges that – I think we lose sight because the robe is black. Folks are sitting down. It's a position of authority. We forget that judges are human, uh, and some of them, you know, they really care. Uh, I want to give you – I'm going to play an example of that. I'm going to get your thoughts on it on, on the other side of this clip. Let's play it. Oh, shoot. Sometimes the best way to help someone who has fallen into a hole is not to throw them a rope but to climb in. Steve Harpin learned this on the road. Inside the county courthouse in Fayetteville, North Carolina, Judge Lou Oliveira made headlines with an unusual decision. You may be seated. A few years ago, 
Joe Cerna was arrested for drunk driving. As part of his probation, he wasn't allowed to drink. So when he lied about a recent urine test, the judge felt he had no choice. I gave Joe a night in jail because he had to be held accountable. It was just one night, but as he entered the cell, Joe says he knew it would be one of the longest nights of his life. When I walked into the jail cell and they closed the door behind me, I started feeling this um, anxiety. It came back. It came back. Flashback. Retired Army Sergeant First Class Joe Cerna did three tours in Afghanistan and has two Purple Hearts to show for it. The Green Beret survived an IED and a suicide bomber. But he says his scariest moment was the night he was riding in a truck with three other soldiers. What happened? We were, we were following the, the creek and uh, the road gave way. And uh, the vehicle went into the creek. Truck started filling with water? Yeah. All hope was lost. Trapped and unable to move, Joe felt the water rising, past his legs, then waist and neck, until finally it stopped at his chin. How many guys got out of that truck? Alive? Yeah. Just me. I was a sole survivor. Joe says it still haunts him. So I suffer from PTSD. Among his issues? a fear of being in small, cramped places. I knew what Joe was going through, and I knew Joe's history, and he had to be held accountable, but I just felt I had to go with him. I felt I had to go with him. And so, a few minutes after Joe was locked up, Judge Lou Oliveira surprised the man he sent to jail by joining for the entire night. We ate meatloaf, and uh, we talked about a lot of things. We talked about our families. And the walls got further apart. The walls just got, they, they, they didn't exist anymore. He brought me back to North Carolina from being in a truck in Afghanistan. That meant so much to me, sir. I know. This week, Joe promised the judge no more mess-ups. I don't want to let you down, ever. Not how law and order usually works. Right, sir. But sometimes jail is not what a man needs. Sometimes the best sentence is compassion. Thank you for me. Steve Hartman, on the road, in Fayetteville, North Carolina. Thank you, And compassion heals. Well, there you have it. Uh, you, wow. Uh, heart-wrenching. Uh, Judge, your thoughts on that? Well, that's really great. You know, it's so inspiring to hear that. And I embrace that wholeheartedly. And I like to think that we do that and that I do that. And I really do believe, I know about federal judges because that's the system I'm in. And I am always impressed, really, with the quality and the dedication to the job. The public may not see these people, may not know who they are. And it may sound silly for me to say this. Now, it varies from place to place. I can speak clearly about my court in Brooklyn. We have all sorts of drug rehab programs. We have all sorts of deferment programs where we don't put people in jail, where we get them treatment instead. Uh, and uh, we uh, do things in our, uh, the world of probation where we put people on a leash, but we hold them accountable. But, you know, I think one thing that I did years ago, I had a fellow who came. He was in jail for two years on a serious robbery charge. 
uh, and uh, uh, the uh, he had not been uh, well. He had been sentenced. He's in jail for two years, but he, he actually he was not sentenced. But anyway, he came to me and he showed me pictures that he painted Mother Teresa, and he did a portrait of me. And I let this guy out of jail, and I got him a job painting the walls of a kindergarten school with all these Humpty Dumpty characters that he was so skilled at, and uh, it changed his life around. Uh, so I really embrace that. I hope that. I'll have more opportunities to do those things, and I do think compassion is critical. We're in the business, really, of helping people help themselves. The public doesn't see that. They only see the fact that there's a crime done, people go to jail. They don't see this whole other world, dealing with probation, dealing with supervised release, dealing with how we deal with post-incarceration matters. And I think that uh, the public is missing out a little bit because there's a lot of good that we do. We're almost like social workers. We try to get people who have alcohol problems, who have drug problems, to help themselves. And uh, so I do think that the judiciary, and I know especially the federal judiciary and that wonderful judge that, you know, is down south, uh, we, we're human beings, obviously, and I think we're as sensitive as any other human beings, and maybe even more so because we see more tragedies. We see people who are raised in broken homes all the time who have to struggle and fight just to get by. Uh, so I think that the public maybe does not have a full awareness of the whole range of what we judges are all about. Your program, I think, is terrific because it brings more awareness and it shines a spotlight on these critical issues. And I hopefully it humanizes the judges who are, have to make these decisions. And they're tough to do and they're gut-wrenching many times. I think that we have a better system in this country, notwithstanding the fact we have lots of problems yet to solve, than any other system in the world. Uh, it can be improved. People like you and what you're doing out there, uh, you're in the right direction. Uh, and that's about, you know, my speech from the mouth, so to speak, as a judge tonight. Well, Judge, we appreciate uh, the work that you do, and, and I'm so glad uh, that you have that uh, thought process of, of compassion. It's not something you can uh, make up. That's something that that's just comes from the heart. Uh, and I'm honored. In, I mean, we're honored here at AJC Radio in a way I, I fail to put in the proper words. Uh, our very special thanks for what you do uh, in your courts. I, I intend to follow you even more. Uh, and please know you have a support system here at AJC Radio and a just cause. And uh, thank you so much for taking some time with us tonight uh, after a long day. We really, really appreciate it. Well, well, thanks very much. And now I may have a drink to get rid of my toothache. And uh, thanks a million. It was just a very special moment to be able to share this time with you folks. Thank you very much. Thank you. Have a good rest of your evening, Judge. Take care. Well, there you have it, Judge Block. Uh, coming back on the other side of the break, uh, we're going we're gonna to talk a little bit more. Uh, folks, go out and get his book, Race to Judgment, and another book he's written, Disrobe, uh, an inside look at the life and work of a federal trial judge. Uh, William, when you hear the judge talk, uh, that clip is very moving, uh, where a judge said, I don't want to leave this defendant alone, knowing the history of what he has gone through in three uh, uh, situations where he's been deployed to Afghanistan. How big is that? I have never heard of that. Well, you know, you look at it, even in our own personal experiences, the people that impact our lives are people that we look up to, and they're the ones that reach out to us. The judge has that same capability. When they're sitting there, you're, you know, their decision 
is going to change and alter your life. If he could do something to put you back on the right path, I think that's any one of any judge should want should desire that. If even if they have to send somebody to prison, their hope and intent is that it will change their life and well, say, you know what, I'm going from this, I'm going to choose a different path. Well, the judge said, I have to go with him. That is unheard of. Yes. I mean, I, I, I don't think we got to really grasp the gravity of that. He left his home, probably his wife that night, and said, I need to go to this jail cell because I can't leave this defendant and alone. That, that clip, I'd, see, I'd seen that story prior to that clip. And when you look at that judge, it was so much compassion. It's huge. In 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 his in what he did, his statement, he said, "I have to teach this guy a lesson." But he understood that this man had gone through a situation due to war, fighting for the freedoms of our country, and said, "You know what? In spite of that, I have to choose an alternate way. I have to try to make an impact." Well, but there's other ways of doing it. Well, he sentenced the guy to one night, but he said, "I have to go." And, go ahead, go ahead, Cliff. No, I was going to say, even when you look at uh, the sentence that he gave, now, a lot of judges and prosecutors say, well, one night is not enough. The compassion of this judge. See, a judge has to not only say, okay, I'm upholding the letter of the law, but it has to be, I can do that with compassion. So this judge is, is seeing that, you know, I got to do something. So I got to at least give you one night, which most people will say, well, that's not enough for a DUI. But he's understanding the situation here that I got to give you overnight in a cell to teach you a lesson. But I'm not only am I going to try to be as lenient as I can because of your situation, but I'm going to get in there with you. That is what we need for judges. I mean, a judge is supposed to be there to understand what is going on with the person on trial. Otherwise, all we would have is is the prosecutor, the defense, and the law. You wouldn't need any. You wouldn't need any referee, any middle, any middleman. This judge has, uh, you know, there's you. You can't say enough about his level of compassion and understanding the community that he serves. It's it's just it, it's amazing what he did. And and that one night, guaranteed that soldier that served for our country will never forget that judge that's, that uh, got in that cell with him to ensure that he didn't go all the way back through the situation where, you know, dealing with, well, I, I'm, I'm claustrophobic. I got PTSD. Now he's being reminded of his fellow soldiers that, that passed away in that Humvee that, you know, with him right there, with nothing that he could do, he's going through that again. And that judge says, I'll get in here with you and go, go through it with you to ensure that you don't have any, any more tra- trauma that you, uh, than you actually need to. No, absolutely right, and that, that just speaks volumes. Uh, and I believe we have uh, retired lower court judge Donna Ham. is that correct? Uh, and we're going to be coming back with Ms. Ham here after the break. Give us a minute. We're coming right back with you, and we're honored to have you on our show. We'll be right back. We have a big problem, and we need your help. It's happening on college campuses, at bars, at parties, even in high schools. It's happening to our sisters and our daughters. Our wives 
and our friends. It's called sexual assault, and it has to stop. We have to stop it. So listen up. If she doesn't consent, or if she can't consent, it's rape, it's assault. It's a crime. It's wrong. If I saw it happening, I was taught you have to do something about it. If I saw it happening, I speak up. If I saw it happening, I'd never blame her. I'd help her. Because I don't want to be a part of the problem. I want to be a part of the solution. We need all of you to be part of the solution. This is about respect. It's about responsibility. It's up to all of us to put an end to sexual assault. And that starts with you. Because one is too many. I'm a mother. I'm a father. I'm a sister. A registered nurse. I serve my country in the United States military. I'm your neighbor. I sit next to you at church. And my child was arrested, held in custody, questioned without my knowledge, exposed to violence, witnessed to rape, placed in solitary confinement, unable to call or see me, shackled to a wall, beaten, sentenced as an adult at age 17, sentenced as an adult at age 16, sentenced as an adult at age 15. We felt lost, isolated, ostracized, misjudged, terrified, and in the absence of all hope, my child took his own life. And then I found the Alliance for Youth Justice. They gave me the support and resources to get through one of the most difficult times in my life. Now I know I'm not alone. And neither are you. Now we have a voice. Now we We have power. In numbers. In numbers. In numbers. We can can make a difference. There are approximately 2 million children in the juvenile and criminal justice system in this country. These are the faces of those families. If you are the family member of a child who has been in the justice system, or if you are someone who supports this movement and is ready to make a difference, visit the Campaign for Youth Justice at www.campaignforyouthjustice.org. Uh, welcome back, folks, to AJC Radio. We bring the message of justice all around the world. That is our goal. That is our purpose. Tonight, we take a moment to honor judges who are there to make a difference. And what we've just heard thus far has been overwhelming. A judge spends the night in a jail with a man he sentenced to one night in jail. And says they sat down, they ate jailhouse meatloaf. And I'll tell you, from wrongful conviction of my own, it's not the best meal. But he sat there and had it. And we salute uh, that judge as well as Judge Block. And tonight we are honored to bring on uh, retired lower court, court judge Donna Ham. Donna, you're with us? Thank you. Yes, I am. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. And thanks for taking some time with us tonight. And and uh, as we believe, no matter how many bad judges you have, you got some judges out here that are good judges that are doing a lot to impact this nation. I will put you in that uh, category uh, for the work you've done thus far and what you continue to do uh, to make a difference. We, want, we salute you tonight and say a very special thank you uh, for your service to this nation. Um, well, tell I'm the fo- very honored to be at. Thank you. We appreciate that. And, Judge, uh, what are, you, what, what are your thoughts about the current uh, criminal justice system where judges are concerned? There's a lot of uh, lawsuits out there. A lot of people feel mistreated by some judges, feel like they, they've just 
cross the line, and, and they do, how do we solve that problem and get judges like yourself, Judge Black, how do we get more judges in there like that that are doing things that are really effective uh, to implement change? Well, there's no question that the appointment process or in some cases the election process to get judges into office is flawed and it's political and it has uh, some inherent faults and we also have to be concerned about the fact that at least in the jurisdictions where I've worked and I think it's fairly common throughout the country we have so much of an imbalance of prosecutorial uh, power where judges in some cases have become irrelevant. The plea bargaining process is the major um, vehicle in which people are convicted. Uh, People don't go to trial because the consequences of doing so are so onerous with our sentencing codes. And the prosecutors really control what the plea bargaining process will be And it's almost irrelevant for the judge to be present when you have a stipulated plea agreement, when you have limitations imposed by the plea agreement so that mitigation cannot be considered because a stipulated sentence is required. So it's really, if I had to sum it up in a word, I would say it's frightening. Yes, no, without question. And and I'm sure over the years you, you, you saw a lot. What makes a judge, uh, in my opinion, I would think, uh, and, and we're advocates here, so uh, there's times that without question when we've heard what we've heard is seen what we've seen as advocates. Sometimes it takes your sleep away. Sometimes it troubles you. Sometimes it brings tears to your eyes. As an advocate, I can't even imagine uh, a judge having to make such tough decisions of of what that process is like when you're dealing with that. Can you share a little bit about that with us? Yes, I I think very early in the process, you have to understand that you cannot second-guess yourself. You have to um, make a pact with yourself to do the best you can under the circumstances with the information that you have available but you would never sleep at night if you began to second-guess every decision you make. And thank God for the appellate process, because if someone disagrees with a decision you've made, they do have an appeal. But no judge likes to be overturned on appeal. Uh, That's mostly an egotistical thing, I think. But clearly... um, my philosophy, and I only worked at the lower court level, but it was more of a community-based level. I tried to determine what could I do for a defendant rather to a defendant, and that was a critical difference. If you could do something for him or her to um, not just teach a lesson, but to Uh, provide an opportunity for him to get out of whatever trap he was in. That was an opportunity for you to be creative and to be compassionate and to be fair. And that's what justice should be. That should be the goal of the justice 
system. That's awesome. Dennis? Yeah, uh, when you said that, I mean, you know, to really, when you, when uh, being a judge is, is a difficult uh, job at, you know, any cost, but, but to, to, when you said, when, you, when you're talking about, you really got to look at being fair, you know, not, not, not what you can, you know, how you can, uh, you, know, you know, put that person in prison, but how can we prevent it? How can we do something for that individual to make them better? And, and again, I believe there's a lot of judges like yourself that is out there doing that. But I tell you, that's that's commendable because a lot of times, you know, when you when you hear things, it looks as though it was one side. And then you talk about the prosecutor uh, having too much power. And again, I'm sure there's some uh, things out there where we're trying to limit that. But until we do, as a judge, you got to be able to uh, look at look at all that and then figure out how can we make sure that justice prevails and that that defendant uh, gets gets what they truly deserve and not what. Uh, you know the the prosecutor w- would have them deserve, but I tell you, thanks thanks a lot for that comment because again, it's all about fairness, and and, and that's what you're talking about tonight. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Go ahead, go ahead, Judge. Well, I I just um, you know it sounds a little corny, but you have to uh, you have to keep that image of the lady of justice with a blindfold on and an evenly balanced set of scales in her hands. And that's the image you have to project. You have to, uh, no one is going to walk out of a courtroom, whether it's a criminal matter, a civil matter, no one is going to walk out happy because there is going to be a prevailing party. But if you can make them walk out feeling that they're, their position was heard, that they were treated fairly, that their issues were carefully weighed and given the balance that they needed and deserved. That's what you strive for as a judge. And that was what I tried to do uh, as much as possible. Again, uh, that is taken away when someone has already decided what the sentence will be. And that's when a prosecutor behind closed doors, without any input from the defense, from the judiciary, from any other party but his own, his own particular office politics or position, um, that's what prosecutors do behind closed doors when they stipulate sentences that must be adhered to. And the judge only has... Uh, two choices, either accept the plea bargain as offered or reject it. And then you subject the defendant to the full, um, the full requirement that he expose himself to all of the charges, all of the original charges and the sentences for that. So it's very, very frustrating to be in that position and not being able to apply fairness and mitigation and consequences that are that are completely balanced. No, absolutely, Judge. And it says here that you are founding executive director of Middle Ground Prison Reform, uh, says an all-volunteer nonprofit organization, uh, and that you actually have had the opportunity to appear on CBS 60 Minutes, the Bill Morris program, numerous PBS programs, uh, regular contacted by the Associated Press and other print and electronic media organizations for your views, which means you come very well respected 
with that type of, uh, of resume. Tell me a little bit about it. says here that you uh, has been, have been qualified as an expert witness in state and federal courts uh, on issues such as prison and jail policy and conditions, as well as on executive clemency issues. Tell us a little bit about that and that experience, your experience with that. Yes, um, executive clemency, a lot of people really don't understand uh, it's available to, in any of the state government um, in our 50 states to the governor, the sovereign of the state. It's an act of grace that is allowed to be bestowed by the sovereign, the governor, um, on people who have been unjustly sentenced or have suffered a manifest injustice in their conviction or their sentence or who have made extraordinary strides while in prison to change themselves and to better themselves and to be rehabilitated. So it's an opportunity for the governor to recognize that. Unfortunately, it has also become a very politicalized process, politicized process. And and so governors are not using the clemency process for what it was intended. Instead, they're very reluctant um, to deal with perhaps controversial cases or cases where there may be violence involved or for a sex offender. But those are generally the cases that, that um, one thinks about in terms of harsh, overbearing sentences or complete changes for the defendant. So it's a it's a process that has good bones, but is uh, is on life support at this point, uh, with with many 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 governors in most states. Well, Judge Ham, I can't tell you how much we appreciate what you are doing. Uh, I plan to be in touch with you offline. I'd like to learn a lot more about what you're doing and, and, and give you a platform always here on AJC Radio and the Just Cause uh, to get the message out of what you are doing out there. We wanted to take a moment to say thank you for your service and the other judges uh, that have, will call in and those that have already. Thank you so much for the service that you've given your community and this nation and your mindset and given us insight to what's really important. We really thoroughly appreciate you so very much. Well, thank you, and and uh, we we appreciate the kind of voice that you are giving um, to people who need to hear, to people who need to be educated about what the justice system is really supposed to be about and how it's supposed to work in this country. Absolutely, and uh, again, we we want to be respectful of your time, and thank you so much. I'm sure you've had a long day. Uh, but we wanted to hear from, from judges tonight, and, and you're one, of, one, of, one among the best uh, that's doing such a great job in what you did then and what you're doing now to continue uh, that public service is well appreciated. We appreciate you very much. Appreciate it. Thank you. you have a good rest of your evening. Thank you so much. Thank Judge. you. Bye-bye. There you have it, folks. Judge Donna Ham. I'll tell you what. This is – she says we have to have the image of – the lady of justice that is blindfolded in order to do our job. And uh, uh, we're so appreciative of her taking some time tonight. Uh, and, and this is something that's critically important right now. Uh, we've got another judge we'd like to talk to. Uh, judge Michael Hebe. 
uh, and we're honored tonight. Uh, again, as I said, folks, these folks work very hard all day, and to give a few minutes to our, organ- our, our radio show and to give some insight to our listeners across this nation, we're appreciative of that. Judge, are you there? I am. I'm excited to be on your show. Thank you, Judge. We appreciate that. And uh, as I don't know how much of the show you've heard thus far, but we're really it's important for us uh, as an advocate organization to shine the light not only on those folks that may be getting it wrong, but for the judges that are really out here giving of themselves and taking the oath they took very seriously. We believe you fall under that umbrella, and we're honored to have you tonight on our program. Well, thank you, Lamont. Really appreciate your kind words. And, Judge, we'll start with this. There's a lot of things going on right now in our criminal justice system uh, that we talk about a lot on this program, whether it's uh, prosecutional misconduct or judges simply uh, remaining silent, uh, judges not lifting their voice to ensure justice, all of those things. What are your thoughts about, you know, you have the good and the bad in any industry you go into. How do we address the issues? Because the impact of judges their decisions are so impactful and, and really life-altering uh, uh, situations that take place. How do we address this issue to at least bring folks to the knowledge of what judges should be doing uh, in their capacity? Wow, what a question. Uh, uh, you know, I don't, I don't really understand what you're, what you're getting at. Uh, I've been retired for five and a half years. Uh, and, uh, I, I, my whole thing is, uh, uh, that there's a, there's a proverb in the Bible that says, uh, it's King Solomon talking to his kids and he says, do not forsake truth and mercy, bind them around your neck and etch them on the tablet of your heart. And so find high favor and high esteem with God and man. So for me, truth and mercy are the foundations. And when I was a kid, I watched a show called Superman. It was engaged in a never-ending battle for truth, justice, and the American way. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and I, you know, I can talk about that stuff for a long time. But uh, yeah. it's, uh, it's the path of righteousness it's doing the right thing, doing, uh, talked about our uh, American Constitution says due process of law. And that simply means one of the first classes you learn in law school, what the heck does due process mean? That means being fair, fundamental fairness to both sides. And then you, and there's that aspect of it, uh, truth, that's always, that's integrity, that's honesty, that's being open, that's not hiding things. And then mercy is to treat everybody with kindness, love, respect. One of the first things I ever learned, I asked a a judge when I first went on the bench, what's the most important thing I can do? He says, never get mad. Always be kind to everybody, even if it's an attorney that's driving you crazy and wants to bait you. Do not just kill them with love. And that was the, some of the best advice I ever had, was treat everybody with respect. Never speak down to a defendant that's going away to prison about anything other than being positive and respectful. Uh, so 
I, I don't know if that gets at what you're saying, but that's you know that's to me is the foundation is that, that if you combine truth, integrity, honesty, application of the rule of law, and balance it with mercy, compassion, kindness, those two added together equal justice. Yeah, and judge, that's exactly what we what I was trying to say. Your, I mean, you you answered it a thousand times over, and that's perfect. Uh, uh, and I think that's important as far as what you say, uh, as far as the compassion and the mercy. And, and still, you have a job to do, but it can be done. It's, mom used to tell me all the time, not necessarily what you do, it's how you do it. And that's critically important. How are you doing it? You may have to render judgment on somebody, but how you do it makes a huge impact about whether they survive it or not. Uh, so I think, I think your position on that is very, very uh, respected. Uh, I see here that... Uh, 2013, you founded Judges for Justice, a nonprofit Correct. organization. Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, it's we call it an innocence organization, but we're not like some of the uh, like Innocence Project or Centurion Ministries. Uh, one of my uh, one of my favorite people of all time is Frederick Douglass, mm-hmm. and he had the ear of Lincoln. And I think he was a major, major force behind the abolishing of slavery in this country. And he once said, I expose slavery because to expose it is to kill it. Slavery is one of those monsters of darkness to whom the light of truth is death. So I love that. And so that means to me as a retired judge that I have been given certain life experiences. I know a lot about the law. I know a lot about uh, wrongful convictions and how they happen. I know the psychology behind them. And I see you're having Amanda Knox on the show. You know, that's how I got involved. She was a neighbor girl. And I saw right away, and I was a sitting judge. She got involved in a uh, arrested in Italy for a crime she had nothing to do with. And I saw early on it was a wrongful conviction. And I started speaking out. And it was frowned upon by a lot of people, especially as a... But one thing about judges, we can say I'm not acting in my judicial capacity. I am speaking as a private citizen on this mm-hmm. subject. And, when I, and I could do that. I, I spoke to over 50 rotary groups in California, Washington State, British Columbia, about the innocence of Amanda Knox and to get the message out that she was innocent. And out of that experience, I saw we have a ton of wrongful convictions in this country. It's not just Italy. And so what we try to do is go in. The original name for our our, our organization is somewhat of a misnomer. Our original organization was we were going to call it Judicial Evaluation of Alleged Innocence. And uh, that wasn't too catchy. And uh, so we're not just judges. We've got, I'd say, four active judges, but we also have retired FBI. We have retired police officers. And we go in. We have uh, DNA experts. We have polygraph experts. And we go in and look at a situation, and if we feel the person is uh, wrongfully convicted, we get active by exposing the wrongful conviction. In a lot of wrongful convictions, uh, you have uh, 
a person is convicted long before they go to trial. Amanda Knox was convicted in the court of public opinion before she ever got to trial. She never had a chance. And you see that in the, in the uh, five kids that were convicted on the Central Park Jogger case. You see that in a case we worked on in Idaho, Chris Tapp case. We, got, we helped get him out after 20 years and 52 days for a crime he had nothing to do with. And we're working on a case in Hawaii. And the conviction happens, the community, when you have a horrible, unspeakable crime, like the West Memphis Three or something like that, you have, it puts fear into the society, into the community. And that fear comes out with, okay, let's turn to a scapegoat here. Let's get an answer for this crime. Uh, so we come in and we try to change public opinion. And when we change the public opinion, when we change the court of public opinion, it leaks over. Can't predict how it's going to happen, but it leaks over into the judicial branch, and then good things start happening for the wrongfully convicted person. That's awesome, Judge. That is that is awesome, what you folks are doing. Uh, how impressive is that? Uh, and the fact, Judge, when you say you can hear somebody, this comes from your years of experience, uh, you knew Amanda Knox was uh, a victim of the system before it ever even started, and you knew something was wrong. That's where the experience of judges come in, to have that insight, to know something's off here, something's not quite right. And those are the type of folks you got to have on the bench actively as well, because maybe it avoids a wrongful conviction. It avoids a lockup. I think with your perspective of how you ruled or judged and how you did your job, if we had more judges with that mindset, well, how different would this society be? Is, is my well, judges are – it's a difficult thing because there's, a, there's some principles. Uh, a sitting judge is uh, – there's a principle called uh, – Comity, C-O-M-I-T-Y. That's respect for other cases, other juries and judges and Supreme Courts and all that. And you're not supposed to talk about uh, ongoing cases. You're not supposed to talk. And that's kind of the – and what I discovered is – now, it does – oh, I hate to use the word Trump, but the – that doesn't trump freedom of speech. And right. we are, as judges, have tremendous experience. And we can see where things are going wrong. And I realize why judges don't do it and why don't they don't get active. But we are the ones that should, especially in retirement or even uh, if we're a sitting judge, in my opinion – we see something going on should step outside the robes uh, and outside our position and possibly make a statement about what's going on where we see error happening right in front of us because the community that's in fear that's threatened by this horrible underlying crime they can't see it they're just so locked in and so you need uh Amanda Knox, in 2009, when she was convicted, 95% of the people of Italy knew her and hated her. Uh, and 
by the time she was completely exonerated by the Italian Supreme Court six years later, it had switched. Public opinion had switched to, gee, maybe she's innocent. And to all those people listening who think they might know something about Amanda, you probably don't because you've heard so many lies that were put out by the police and prosecution in the Italian case. She's just a wonderful young lady, and I'm proud that she's a friend of my daughter's and, and a friend of our family. She's just awesome. Well, that's that's respectable, Judge. Uh, and again, I mean, I'm without words to say how much we respect your position and what you're doing beyond the bench right now. Uh, I think it's, it's, it's absolutely uh, awesome uh, that you involved. Well, thank you, me. Lamont. Yeah, I think that's good, and, and I'll tell you what, Judge, we appreciate you taking some time out of your schedule tonight uh, to talk with us, and the insight you've given our listeners uh, is priceless. We appreciate it so much, and uh, please know this, your organization uh, will always have a platform here on AJC Radio and a Just Cause organization. If there's anything we can do to work with you to get the word out about things that are going on, please do not hesitate to contact the Just Cause. Well, there is one real quick thing, Lamont. Our website yes. is... Our website is www.judgesforjustice.org. And we have a fairly new video on there about the innocence of three wrongfully convicted men, two of them native Hawaiians on the big island of Hawaii. It's very informative. If you like shows like Dateline and 48 Hours, people will love it. It's called Who Killed Dana Ireland? And you're going to see it wasn't the three guys that were convicted. I think your listeners would really enjoy watching it. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to go watch it uh, tonight once we leave this studio. uh, Great. And, uh, Judge, I appreciate you so much. And anything else you want to tell the folks in closing? We don't want you to feel rushed in any way. Uh, You know, uh, in one of Martin Luther King's speeches, he said, the arc of the moral universe is long but it bends towards justice. And I'm just saying, we take a step back every now and then, but usually we're taking two steps forward, I think, as a society and moving towards ultimate justice, whatever that looks like. Awesome. Judge Hebe, thank you so much. Uh, Hey, thanks for having me, Lamont. Really appreciate it. You're very kind. We appreciate you, and we'll definitely be in touch. Take care and good luck in all your endeavors. We appreciate it. Okay, same to you. Bye-bye. Thank you. So you have it, Judge Michael Heavey. Coming back on the other side of the break, Judge Charles Baird will be joining us. We want to get his perspective on a criminal justice system. In many folks' opinion, if you will, has fallen off the rails. How do we get it fixed? What do we do? We're going to hear from Judge Baird on the other side of this break. We'll be right back. Because I'm 16, I can't drive at night. Because I'm 16, I can't work past 10 o'clock on a school night. Because I'm 16, I can't get a cell phone contract without my parents. Because I'm 16, I can't get a flu shot without my mother's consent. At 16, I'm not old enough to watch an R-rated movie alone. Because I'm 16, I can't buy a lottery ticket. I can't vote. I can't drink. I can't smoke. I can't join the military. Because I'm 16, I can't sit on a jury, but I can be tried as an adult. I can get a lifetime criminal record. If I get arrested, my parents don't have to be notified. Because I'm 16, my mother had to sign this consent form 
so that I could participate in this video. But I can go to an adult prison. But I can go to Rikers Island. But I can be sent to Attica. My name is Michael Corriero. I was a judge for 28 years in the criminal courts of the state of New York. New York is one of only two states in the entire nation that it automatically tries children as young as 16 as adults. We need to change that. Last week, my father sent me to my room. Next week, a judge could sentence me to an adult prison. We need to judge children as children. It's time to raise the age of criminal responsibility in New York. to affordability and say hello to losing control. Discover Price Gougesol, the latest outrageously expensive drug from Big Pharma. It's impossible to afford and reverses the ability to pay other bills because drug companies raise prices to pay for commercials like this one. Side effects may include overdrawn bank accounts, bad credit scores, higher health care costs, children who don't get Christmas presents, and in some cases, the need to stop taking your medicine. If you experience any of these side effects, contact your financial advisor right away. Out-of-control drug costs are no joke. Yet nine of the 10 biggest pharma companies spend more on advertising than research and development. Let's solve the cost crisis now. Visit csrxp.org. Sergeant Michelle Garcia served meritoriously in Iraq and has the medals to prove it. Soon after leaving the Navy, Lieutenant Chris Scott found a job, a home, and started a family of his own. Corpsman Richard Stokely took the skills he learned in Vietnam and put them to good use as a paramedic. But soon after leaving the military, each of these veterans fell on hard times and faced homelessness. Even after Michelle lost all her savings, even after Chris wasn't able to pay his mortgage, and even after Richard battled alcoholism for years, they each reached out for help when they needed it most. A simple phone call put them in touch with a trained professional from the Department of Veterans Affairs. That call got Michelle a place to stay until she could afford one of her own, put Chris in touch with employment assistance, and found Richard a substance abuse program. These veterans are success stories, not only for how they were able to help others while serving their country, but for how they were able to let others help them. If you know of or are a veteran in need, make the call. And welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio. I'll tell you what, folks. We've been talking to judges tonight, their perspective on the justice system, and right now we're honored to have uh, former judge Charles Baird joining us. We forgot your sign because Mr. Baird comes from Texas, it looks like, and uh, we'll definitely give it this due process. Good afternoon, Judge. How are you? I'm great. How are y'all? We're doing good. Very happy to have you. Thanks for taking a few moments uh, of your time tonight, Judge, uh, and joining us on this program as we are talking the issues and honoring, really, the integrity that judges possess, what they're doing. We, we believe you fall in under that umbrella as well, and we're just uh, completely honored to have you tonight and, and look forward to your perspective. Well, I'm honored to be on the program, and I'm honored to be, uh, you know, in the same company of the other judges that you've already visited with tonight. Yes, and we appreciate that, Judge. Give us your thoughts. Uh, I'll just give you the floor 
of the challenges we face as a nation with criminal with the criminal justice system and some of the things I'm sure you'll echo of what some of these other judges have said but give us your perspective how do we get get move forward uh, you know with these challenges facing us as well but also to to bring back integrity if you will to the bench as it needs to be well that's a uh, a great question. It's also a very broad question that would <laughs> probably require more time than you and your listeners ha- have, uh, at least for this evening. There is a, a couple of things that, that uh, I would like to see, and I would like to see to the extent that we uh, can, and, and I feel like we should and we must do this, is take out the racial disparity uh, with the treatment that we have for minorities uh, and poor people in the criminal justice system. The last report that I saw said that there was a 32% likelihood of an African-American male being uh, in the criminal justice system sometime in his lifetime. And that could be on probation or in prison or on parole or or some type of uh, criminal justice setting such as that. And I just can't imagine uh, living in in this society where one-third of the African-American males are going to have – uh, that that brand and that stigma against them, as far as wanting to establish a a life and a family and be a productive and and constructive member of society. So I think that that's probably the number one concern for me would be trying to eliminate racial disparity and poverty uh, and the the mistreatment or the uh, disparate treatment that those individuals have. No, no, absolutely, Judge, and it's something that. Uh, at least members of Congress have been talking about the disparity issues uh, with minorities uh, in this country, the, the mass incarceration rate uh, that we find ourselves in as a nation. Uh, and I think those points are, are, are true. How do, we, how do we get other judges to understand, oh, and prosecutors? Look, wait, wait, wait. go ahead. Go ahead, Judge. No, I, I think that, that number one is, is the more um, – the more you expand the pool of the decision makers so that they're not all, you know, white males like me, but they're females and there are individuals in the minority communities that are in there and actively participating uh, in the guidelines and the policies that drive the criminal justice system, uh, I think that that's very, very important. And I think that there also should be, especially in places like Texas where judges are elected, uh, there ought to be some type of way for judges to be able to uh, perform their duty without feeling like they they have to be tough on crime in order to get elected. That's that's a pernicious problem that we have here in Texas. Is that everybody says, well, you know, they're going to my my constituency is going to vote for me because I'm I'm harder on crime than anybody else is. And of course, whenever you're just blanket hard tough on crime. Uh, you're obviously going to spread that net so wide that you're going to pick up a lot of individuals that do not need to be, uh, number one, uh, confined, uh, and number two, probably shouldn't be in the criminal justice system at all, and and thirdly, probably are intimidated by the criminal justice system and the attitude of a judge like that to the extent that they kind of opt out of the criminal justice system rather than uh, enjoying their right to trial by jury, just pleading guilty uh, to a crime they may, may not have committed. No, no, absolutely right, Judge. And, and I think your perspective, at least how you see things and how you uh, – again, I think the point is, is, is to be taken, getting this message out, uh, whether it's through AJC radio, television stations, radio stations all over the country, talking 
to people, whatever type of communication, and say, look, these are coming from judges who have walked the walk, talked to talk the talk, walked the walk. They have seen things that we need to be definitely open to hear. Uh, and I see here in recognition of your judicial service, uh, Judge, uh, Outstanding Judicial Service, Austin NAACP in 2011, uh, Civil Libertarian of the Year, American Civil Liberties Union of Texas 2010, Defender of the Constitution, Courage and Compassion in the Face of Adversity, Texas Hispanic Criminal Defense Lawyers Association, Courage Award in 2010, Texas Coalition to Abolish the Death Penalty. This is a resume that speaks to exactly what, why we need judges like you uh, with the same mindset and the same level of integrity. That is, that is awesome. Uh, I would presume you believe it's based upon your heartfelt conviction that brought you at least uh, in part some of these awards. Well, I, I, I did. You know, when, when judges make decisions, uh, I don't think that they expect that they're going to wind up making a decision and then get a plaque to hang on their wall or something to add to their resume. I think that they do it because uh, they believe, uh, number one, that their oath requires it, and, and number two, that just their humanity uh, requires it. And they treat individuals uh, as they would want to be treated, kind of the golden rule, uh, if you would, from a judicial perspective. And that's certainly what I tried to do. And a lot of the decisions that I made uh, were unpopular, very unpopular, some of them in the local community and and in the press and certainly with the prosecution's uh, office. But they were decisions that I thought was right, that I thought that uh, I was the decision that I reached, I thought, was required by my oath and my compassion and my humanity. And so that's how I, I chose to rule on the cases that were before me. My oath to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution, uh, I took very, very seriously. And uh, I, I especially took out of it, and this might sound strange to a lot of your listeners, but I especially took out of that oath the word preserve. And I did not want to see the constitutional rights uh, that we have eroded in any way. I wanted to make sure that those rights were reserved, uh, preserved uh, for everyone, at least, at least as long as they were in my court. And I know that, that sometimes judges rule in such a way that those rights can be eroded just you know, bit by bit, and before long the right just essentially no longer exists because all the exceptions to that right uh, you know, uh, just destroy the right. And I, primarily, I'm talking there about, you know, the Fourth Amendment right to be uh, free from unlawful or unreasonable searches and seizures. Right. Right. That's awesome. And I think Texas judge gets a little bit of a bad rap as far as the criminal justice system, uh, as known as hardliners, if you will. Man, you don't want to go to Texas and get caught up in that system. This, I mean, I've heard that from a number of people. Uh, oh, man, Texas is tough. And what are your thoughts on the preconceived notion, if you will, or perception uh, of what others may have about Texas, uh, the criminal justice system there? Well, I, I think that Texas, uh, unfortunately, because I'm a native Texan uh, and I love it and I'm going to you know, die here and, and spend the rest of my life here and probably die out and be buried in the state cemetery here. So I'm going to be here for a long time. But I hate the fact that we have that image. But uh, I think, unfortunately, uh, a lot of it is well-deserved. We've had a, a number of individuals who were uh, innocent, uh, that were late, they were incarcerated and uh, uh, later exonerated. We've had, uh, I believe, at least one individual that was, on, uh, that was actually executed uh, when he was, uh, in fact, innocent. And I, I handled a part of that case. 
And um, so it's it's a it's a troubling image, and I don't know that we're doing enough to, uh, you know, not just for the public perception, but for our own uh, well-being and and uh, integrity as a state. Is I don't know if we're doing enough to correct and change the criminal justice system in Texas as I think we should. And I think and that's that's definitely true. And like you said, uh, some of that is well deserved for whatever reason. And I think the case you just mentioned, Judge, was was that the Timothy Cole case? Timothy Cole was a, a case that uh, where I presided over the first posthumous exoneration in Texas. Uh, it was not a capital case. Mr. Cole uh, unfortunately died in prison from uh, natural causes. He had an asthmatic condition that caused his death. The capital case where the individual was executed was the case of uh, Cameron Todd Willingham, who was uh, convicted and uh, prosecuted, uh, prosecuted and convicted for uh, killing uh, his three daughters uh, in a fire that they said had been intentionally set. And all the evidence now is is that it was an accidental fire, and uh, therefore Mr. Cunning, Mr. Willingham was not guilty of anything. Wow. Uh, we, we, Judge, we had a situation here in Colorado. Uh, Deborah Nichols is the young lady. She uh, was, it's ironic if you bring that case up, was it three of her kids died in a fire um and uh they accused the husband and miss, miss nichols and her husband of getting the fire for three thousand dollars a piece of life life insurance uh and an expert witness apparently came forward and said that it was started um an arsonist expert uh and two weeks after the trial he withdrew his opinion uh, and said he made a mistake that the fire was not started on purpose he gave a wrong uh, determination, if you will. Well, number one, those kids are gone. The parents have been in prison for about eight years. Never got a chance to grieve their kids. Uh, so I bring that up just because of what you said about that fire uh, that happened. It's, it's so so close to the same story. Uh, that's something I think probably wouldn't have to need to be looked at even closer when you're dealing with expert testimony. How do you withdraw that after a tri- after a conviction? And say no, that's not the right diagnosis. I would believe that well, would be reason. One one thing that that's wrong with the criminal justice system is it, in my mind, is that once we reach a decision and and a conviction, for example, and it later comes to light that that conviction is unreliable because it was based upon junk science or whatever, we are way too slow to overturn that conviction and restore that individual to his liberty and his freedom and his good name. And why we're so stubborn and slow to do that is beyond me because the the criminal justice system, if it's anything, uh, it is very, very fallible. And we should admit that. We should recognize it when when our errors happen. And we should not be uh, slow about correcting those errors and, and getting that individual you know, back to his, uh, his status as a, as a free person and uh, restoring his liberty and his good name. Oh, Judge, I agree with you totally on that. You know, they say all the time it takes – uh, one prosecutor to get you locked up, but it takes a army to get you out. Uh, shouldn't be that difficult, as you as you allude to there. That if you've made an error, uh, own it and just right. say, you know what, we need to do the right thing. And, and judge, that perspective is so refreshing to hear from you uh, because you you try to figure out where are these judges that are bound by their integrity, and that's what we thought. Right. You know what to do a show about that. Go ahead, Judge. No, no, I, I think that you're right. I do think it comes down to uh, 
the bottom line is just your individual personal integrity. You know, sometimes prosecutors just refuse to admit that uh, their office made a mistake that led to uh, the conviction of an innocent person. And it seems to me like prosecutors who respect their oath to do to seek justice and not to seek just convictions uh, should be at the forefront of saying, you know, our office, we made a mistake. It was a terrible mistake, but it was a mistake. It was not intentionally done. Uh, but we realize the mistake has been made, and we want to correct it. And that's just what people ought to be doing in any circumstance of life, but certainly when your mistake costs somebody else their liberty and their freedom and their good name. No, absolutely right, Judge. I, like I said, that's that's refreshing to hear. Uh, and I, it gives me optimism that perhaps if we get the message out and we have – uh, judges such as yourself speaking out about the issues. Anybody in their right mind is going to know that no system is perfect, and it can be improved. But you run it, sometimes you run up against resistance. You say, well, no, our system is fine just the way it is. Well, that's until you live in injustice. When you live in injustice, you realize, man, our system is flawed. Uh, and for judges, right. for judges such as yourself, Judge, to say, look, own it. This is what we did. We didn't do it intentionally. We're human. We make mistakes. That's one thing, uh, and you can respect that, but you can't respect the judge to even take a look and say, look, well, maybe I did get it wrong, because you know what? But that, that, as I said at the top of this show, many of them have uh, come across the God complex that right. I can't do anything wrong, and that's just, uh, in my opinion, Judge, that's, that doesn't get us anywhere and as a society. No, I, I agree with you, and, and a lot of times you know, prosecutors certainly have that attitude, and judges – uh, have what we call a black robe disease, you know, if they put on that black robe and they think that they're infallible. And, uh, you know, like you said, it's just a very human system. And, and going back to your case in Colorado, you know, a lot of times we rely, the, the judicial system relies upon experts to come in and, you know, provide an opinion as to what they think occurred in, in a particular case, and that was your arson case. But when those cases, it turns out, was based upon essentially junk science, which is what happened here in Texas in the Willingham case, then you ought to, you know, recognize that the the fundamental basis for the conviction itself is unreliable. Then you, obviously you have to overturn that conviction and see if there's other independent proof that would establish the guilt, and if not, then report uh, restore that person's liberty. That's that's exactly right, man. We know what we need to do, Judge. We need to mold you about 100 million times and put you in every court case. Uh, Perhaps we get some better results in this nation with uh, that type of – I mean, that's just awesome. You, know, you said something earlier, Judge. You said it's kind of the golden rule. You'll find yourself – I find myself as, as I get older in life, you understand how important the golden rule is. It's something that is applicable, if you will, in every part of your life probably to get out of here. It's the right. same That's concept. exactly right. Right. And uh, I think was it. Go ahead, Judge. No, I was just going to say that I I tried to getting away now from from uh, a little bit of just the mechanics of being a judge. Uh, when you are called upon, as you are in Texas and every other state, to impose sentences, uh, have bond conditions, uh, have conditions of probation, things of that nature. I think that you really need to look at the individual standing before you and figure out what is in his or her best interest and look at them as an individual. And you can't just cookie cut and say everybody who commits crime A, you know, receives the same sentence because everybody's different and, and their 
age, maturity, sophistication, station in life, whatever that is, and design something that is kind of tailor-made for that particular individual to see that they can better themselves and get out of the criminal justice system. And that's where I was talking about the golden rule primarily was because, you know, that's I would want uh, to be treated that way if I was on the other side of the bench and somebody was looking down at me and saying, what can I do that would best benefit Charlie Baird and, and return him to being a productive member of society? That's awesome. Judge, I, I got so much respect for for you for that statement. Uh, I'll tell you, I, we could probably have a conversation all night and probably not get tired because uh, I believe what you have to say is pertinent, and we appreciate you for joining us tonight. We're not going to hold you any longer. Uh, any closing remarks you'd like to say as we get ready to, for our listeners as, as we discuss this topic uh, for the conclusion? Well, no, I would just – I really appreciate you having me on, and I appreciate the comments of all the other judges that have been here. Uh, and I, I truly appreciate you having a program like this because uh, I think that generally – uh, people perceive judges as, as uh, in one in one way, as far as being very serious, very stern, very you know regimented in everything that they do. And I think that it's good to uh, talk to judges that think outside the box and, and see if there's not a uh, a better way to uh, you know craft the criminal justice system so that it really does serve as a benefit to everybody. It protects society, but also you know restores. Uh, the rights and liberties of the individuals that are in the criminal justice system that don't need to be, and also figures out a way to help the individuals that have found themselves in the criminal justice system so that they can become productive members of society. So I think your program on this particular topic obviously is very special to me, and and hopefully it's been beneficial to all your listeners. I have no doubt, Judge, and uh, we may call on you again to come back, as I'm sure this subject is going to need further discussion. And uh, please know anything that you folks are doing out there, and you need a platform, uh, you'll have it here at AJC Radio and through a Just Cause organization because uh, we consider you friends and we appreciate the work that you folks are doing and, and the, the perspective that you've brought to our listeners tonight means a whole lot. We appreciate it so very much. Happy to be with you. Thanks for having me. Okay, Judge. Have a good rest of your evening. Uh-huh. Bye-bye. Take care. Well, there you have it, folks. Judge Charles Baird out of the state of Texas. I'll tell you what, Dennis, this has been a humdinger of superstars, if you will, of judges that are saying what needs to be said. Uh, And I'm telling you what, they're in it to win it, if you will, and to make a difference in the lives of people. Your thoughts, Dennis, on these judges we've had an opportunity and honor to have on our show tonight. Oh, it's it's been an awesome night. I mean, we've learned so much. In such a little time, you know, uh, with, you know, one of the judges talking about, you know, uh, preserving, you know, making sure that we, the Constitution, uh, you know, the rights are pre- preserved for everyone. And then uh, the one judge talking about judges need to be a social worker, you know, they got to be, yeah. able to, you know, really deal with the people. And then truth and mercy. I mean, that's, I mean that's, yeah. Yeah. that was huge, you know, and, and then just looking at making sure that it's not about just, you know, putting people in prison. It's about finding out what best suits that individual. And that's what the, the last judge, uh, Charles Bear was talking about. You know, not just putting, you know, uh, if you committed crime A, then then you get, you you know, you get the, uh, uh, you, you get it, you get whatever crime, whatever crime you did, that's what you're going to, that's what you're going to get. The punishment, punishment B for crime A. He said, no, nah, look at the individual, make sure that you, you, you're really looking at these people and saying, okay, 
let me do this for this one and this for that one. I mean, these judges are awesome, and it's been so, so far a great, great show. And I, I appreciate it. I commend all the judges that came on tonight. William? You know, Dennis said it, and I was thinking just the compassion, the amount of compassion that, you know, as he was saying, it's not a blanket, uh, you know, a punishment for a crime. You know, the, the crime A, punishment A. You know, it's not that. It is about compassion. It is reaching that person and saying, you know what, and understanding what they need. I think with all the judges, the thing that really stood out to me was how how easy they were. Um, I guess they they didn't feel like they were at a higher level. You know what I'm saying? I think that's one of the things that you think about a lot of these judges. They they're sitting at a higher level and they're just you know reprimanding or or you know carrying out some kind of, of sentencing. They're really reaching out to people and 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 they're touching them and they're saying, you know what? Let me understand what's going on here. And it's and that that's critical. That's what will help reform people. Absolutely, Cliff. Your thoughts on the judges, what they had to say. You heard a lot of uh, common sense from these judges, which, uh, you know, that's what it takes to to be able to preside on the bench. And again, you know, the the compassion and not just saying, okay, it takes the law to be a good judge, because if that were the case, we wouldn't need judges on the bench. But we need judges there who have compassion, uh, who who are are willing to put themselves in the position of the people that they're presiding over, uh, you know, like the judge that that we did the clip with that spent the night in the jail cell with the, um, you know, with the, the, the veteran. These are the type of judges that we need that make a difference in society. The type of judges that for positive reasons, the people that cross their path say, I'll never forget that judge. I'll, I'll never forget what they did. Um, and like uh, the judges said that we're on, Judge, being a judge is not just about what you do to somebody, but it's about what you do for that for defendant them, not to before them. they walk out of your courtroom. What did you do that when they're sentenced, when their time uh, possibly behind bars is over, that they can come back and be a viable and uh, essential part of, of society? That yep. is extremely important. Well, that's how some folks, other side of the break, we're going to play some more clips, some heartfelt stories. Judge Frank Caprio I tell you, he's running viral on YouTube, and he's doing some stuff that'll bring tears to your eyes. We're going to hear from him uh, and play that clip and some other clips on the other side about, about judges that rule with integrity. We'll be right back. This is AJC Radio. Mass incarceration means that we've got a very high rate of incarceration historically, comparatively. And the other thing is the rate of incarceration is so high, so socially concentrated, we're no longer incarcerating the individual, but we're incarcerating whole social groups. The rate of incarceration now is about five times higher than it was historically. Historically, it was 100 per 100,000. Now it's about 500 per 100,000. If we look at prison, if we add jail to that, it's about 700 per 100,000. Nowhere in the world incarcerates as much as we do. We've seen extremely high rates of exposure to the criminal justice system for African-American men with very low levels of schooling. So if we think about black men who were born in the late 1970s and who were growing up through the American prison boom of the 1980s and the 1990s, the chances that they're going to serve time in state or federal prison if they dropped out of high school is about 70%. So going to prison 
For that group of black men with very low levels of schooling, that's become a normal life event. That's really only happened in the last 10 years. We're at this point now where there's about 1.2 million African-American children with a parent who's incarcerated. That's about one in nine. The research shows the kids who experience parental incarceration have diminished school achievement, they have behavioural problems, depressive symptoms, acting out. And there's also evidence that these kinds of negative effects associated with parental incarceration are concentrated more among boys than among girls. And there's a very real risk here that incarceration becomes an inherited trait. The underlying issue is we've chosen prison as a way to respond to that problem of crime. And there are a whole variety of ways that we could have chosen to respond to that problem of crime. We've chosen the response of the deprivation of liberty. And we've chosen the response of the deprivation of liberty for a historically aggrieved group whose liberty in the United States was never firmly established to begin with. Here are 50 white guys. Here are 50 black guys. Here's how many white guys can expect to go to prison in their lifetime. The chances amount to one out of 17. Now here's how many black guys can expect the same thing. The chances are one out of three. Why? Lots of reasons. It's complicated. But one thing is clear. There's racial bias at every level of the criminal justice system. When blacks and whites commit the same kind of crimes, blacks are more likely to be arrested. Once arrested, they're more likely to be convicted. Once convicted, they're more likely to serve longer sentences. Look at the numbers in America's so-called war on drugs. About 14% of American drug users are black, as are about a quarter of drug sellers. Yet blacks are 34% of the people arrested for drug crimes. And those convicted of drug crimes, 46% are black. By the time we factor in sentencing, there are actually more black drug offenders than white ones in state prisons and in federal prisons. In the end, the incarceration rate for drug crimes is 10 times higher for blacks than it is for whites. These are the facts. Racial disparity in America's war on drugs is one big reason that one out of three black men can expect to go to prison in their lifetime. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen of America. This is AJC Radio. And I'll tell you what, we've been talking about the integrity of judges uh, that are actually doing some things. We've been honored and privileged to have four distinguished uh, retired judges, one retired, one still active, doing some great things. And uh, it's been really overwhelming when you listen to these judges, the approach, how you're able, William, as we discussed, how, that these judges are approachable. You can talk, to, I mean, no issue whatsoever, uh, and really getting into their feelings and their heart of what they really believe and what they really feel. Right now, we're going to take you to a clip of a judge who has gone viral on YouTube, Judge Frank Caprio. And I'll tell you what, he's quite a, a character as a judge, but I'll tell you what, man, we need more judges like him in our courtroom. Let's hear what he had to say. Ticket was issued 
at 959. There's right. 959 and 58 seconds. And you can't park there until 10 o'clock. And you violated the city ordinances. These are the city ordinances, Inspector Quinn, that she violated. That point, that point two will get you every time, Judge. People are so accustomed and conditioned to the institutions of the government coming down, you know, hard on them without regard for any personal situations. You know, life is difficult at best. Because my son was recently killed last year. So they got my check because he had old money. I'm going to reduce this to $50. How much time do you need to pay it? I have it on me now. That's not going to leave without any money, is it? I'll leave it with $5. Thank you, Your Honor. I'm not going to leave you with $5. I'm not going to leave you. I'm going to dismiss everything. I am particularly sensitive when youngsters come into the courtroom. Because I think that the conduct of a jurist in the presence of youngsters can shape their thinking in a way that may affect their future, particularly their attitude toward the institutions of government. Your mom is charged with parking on a sidewalk, okay? And that fine is $100. So you you have not had breakfast today. Thank you. Oh. Well, suppose I make a deal with your mom, okay? That if she buys you breakfast when you leave, that I'll dismiss the... I'll dismiss it. Is that a good deal? <laughs> and I think I should take into consideration whether somebody is sick and whether their mother died and whether they have kids who are starving and whether all of those real life situations, you know, are so important to me. Right? Words, I don't wear a badge under my robe. I wear a heart under my robe. Morning, Pasquale. My daughter babysitted for you. Your daughter what? No, my daughter, my, my sister. Back in, uh, on Toby Street. Toby Street? That was years ago. And hey, what about her? My sister had babysit. Oh, you used to Oh, she used to babysit for me. Yes, Your Honor. Yeah, see, you never should tell me that stuff. Now I ha- I can't give you a break. Oh, I'm not asking for one, Your Honor. So, number one, I know your uncle, now your, baby, your sister babysat for her, so I have to give you, like, the full fine here. That's fine. Because if not, I'd be, so I have to uh, recuse myself. Uh, so I'm going to rely upon Inspector Quinn's uh, recommendation. She contacted the court prior to today, Your Honor, and said that she does believe there was one payment you still owe. <laughs> Inspector Quinn thinks your sister, uh, I'm o- I owe your sister some money that we haven't paid her. That's between you and her. <laughs> uh, what do you want to tell me about this? Uh, I've had some financial difficulties in the past uh, few years. And uh, I did try to make an attempt to pay one of them, and I did. I guess I did pay it late, and it was... Oh, one of these was paid. All right, it was paid. Uh, All right, I got it. I got it. $30. Thank you, Your Honor. Well, you understand why Judge Frank Caprio has gone viral on YouTube and social media is loving this judge. And he said, what stood out to me 
Folks, go to YouTube, type in Frank uh, Caprio, Judge Frank Caprio. There's a whole slew of courtroom situations there that will move your heart, probably to tears, as he shows compassion and care. He said to the lady, is this, gonna, is this $50 going to leave you with any money? She said, I'll have $5 left, Judge. He said, I'm dismissing the whole thing. That's awesome. We got a caller, Cliff? Yes, we have the truth on the line. Wants to make a comment. And uh, you're live. Yes, you're live. Yes. Yes, thank you for taking my call. I was listening to the show tonight, and of all the shows that a Just Cause have done, I don't know of any that continually kind of, I, I the whole time I felt like I was just taken aback for a moment because I want other people to know, too, that uh, all judges are not bad. I've never thought they were all bad. But the one that we got in the IRP5 situation was such a disheartening thing. And I think for me it was because uh, I always believed that if you do the right thing and if you don't tell a lie about it and if you if you if you um take your evidence to court it'll be accepted and and so you never have to worry about it. So that's what you train your kids to believe. But after they after this judge and this prosecutor, Judge Arguello and Matt Kirsch, it was such abuse in this case until it would almost make you believe for a moment, and I and and I emphasize a moment to believe that is this the way all judges are like this? Because we've never been in the system before, and so to hear these judges tonight share in what we really believe the system was should be about, and it wasn't in our case. Uh, I think a lot of people are going to have appreciation for that, and that we're not out uh, just badger. Uh, judges and prosecutors in every walk of life, there's some good and there's some bad. And as being, as being a minister, there's a lot of bad ministers out there. I thank God I'm not one of them. But when I listen to them tonight, I have never been more inspired and more uplifted to know that, I mean, these are people that, that say, and I've said the same thing, nobody's infallible. And then when he said they got the they got the judge disease when they put those robes on. He's so it's so true, but we only saw it one time. So to so to see these type of, these judges come on and speak to the issue, and I love the one where she said, "Don't uh, keep your eyes or your vision on on Lady Justice that has blinders on." And it and the man who went to prison, uh, uh, I mean the judge that went to prison. For an inmate, that was so overwhelming. It's just unbelievable. But uh, I had another appointment tonight, and I canceled it. I'm so glad I did. I wouldn't have wanted to miss this show for anything. And it tells us that if we that are who believe in what is right and what is fair, that we can join together with people just like this and make a difference in this country. Because too many people are being abused by the system, and one of them talked about how the prosecutor just wants to win a case, and sometimes uh, the judges have nothing to, uh, don't have any, much to say about it. In our case, they both work together to put our men in prison. And so I'm, I'm thankful for all that we're learning, 
and, and that you're learning as an advocacy group that you might be able to fight better. And so I I appreciate it. It just I'm just overwhelmed with that. It's one time I just was moved to tears over the truth coming from these judges, and uh, and we have appreciation for them. And above all, uh, Judge Sarakin, who have who have went to bat for our guys a hundred percent and gave it everything he had. And so we're not giving up. We keep fighting. And I hope I hope eventually one day we can say in this country that we got some fair, just judges. Because the scripture says that men that rule over men must be just and rule in the fear of God. And I'm glad for the compassion we heard tonight. And and it it just was overwhelming. I am so thankful for this organization and how you're moving forward and you're learning a lot in the process and getting a chance to talk to different people with different views, but all of them honest, people of integrity, people that have compassion. It's just, it's just, I hope it helps everybody that's listening to think if you had an experience with a bad judge, please don't put them all in the same basket because they don't belong there. So thanks again, and I hope that you'll soon do a part two on this. Just get as many judges as we as you can over a period of time. That at the end of the year, you're able to say, this is how many how many judges we found in the course of a year that are fair, they're just, and they con- and they and they consider you a human being and not just some person standing there, or oh, many times re- uh, referred to as animals. So thank you so much. I appreciate it. I hope all the listeners that were out there would know that there is a way out. There are some good judges, and uh, just cause need to do everything they can to ensure that we get more and more good judges with conscience and with and with the fear of God. And I just, I it's just overwhelming. Thank you so much. And thank you, Paul. The truth. And right now, we'll announce it. Now, the Judges of Integrity series kicks off as of tonight, as we will be in search for judges across this land of integrity judges of integrity series the birth of it starts right now from that caller's idea and we're going to do that and uh we'll be in the process of doing that we'll contact these judges let them know that they are part of something special uh that they were the foundation in which that uh series was born as well as the truth in that idea and i'll tell you what folks this is this is something that's good um and and we need to talk about it folks feel free to go out to ajc radio you can hear the entirety of this show and also follow the series, the Judges of Integrity series, uh, in the near future will be uh, on the website as well. Uh, go to AJCRadio.com. Uh, you can listen to any of our shows as the caller reference, uh, retired federal judge H. Lee Sarakin, uh, uh, who we honored some weeks ago. Um, uh, that program is also out there. I would recommend and ask that you go out and listen to that as well. Uh, and, and we'll definitely uh, be able to hopefully – Bring some information uh, and some inf- information that of, of substance, if you will, as far as the human side of these judges. And, Dennis, I think what the caller says, uh, not only part one, part two, we're talking about an entire series we're getting ready to kick off in honor of judges of integrity. Your thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, yeah, the callers, uh, it's, again, I, I, I ditto uh, what the callers uh, was talking about. These, these judges were awesome. And and they were really true, and they were really compassionate. And it wasn't about putting someone in prison. It was about how can we help them stay out of prison, or if they was wrongfully convicted, how do we how do we right that wrong? We do it. And, and you know, it's, it was an awesome show. And again, great comments. 
and two simple things. The golden rule you heard probably in second and third grade as a youngster. Exactly. The judge says we apply by that rule from the bench. And that's awesome. But not only that, the last statement which stood out today on this show uh, by Judge Ham, she said, I want to know what I can do for the defendant, not to the defendant. Awesome. A very special thanks to all of our judges, Judge Block, uh, Judge Hebe, Judge Baird, and Judge Ham. A very special thanks for this program tonight. We appreciate your input, and uh, I'll tell you what, we're just getting started. Judges of Integrity Series kicks off tonight. Good night, America. We'll see you next time. Have you ever picked up any other charges? Okay, I'm not accepting this sentence. That's ridiculous. Um, no. I'm sentencing you to a... How long have you been in custody? Um, well, they picked me up at Sunday morning. And you have no charges anywhere? The jail would also refuse to give her pants. Any kind of hygiene problem. Pants? What? I've been wearing this since I came in with this on Sunday. Excuse me? Excuse me? <laughs> this is outrageous. Is this for real? I have a defendant who has been in your all's jail for three days, who is standing in front of me completely pantsless, has no pants on. She has requested pants for three days and has been denied pants for three days. She has no pants and she is in court. And she has also been denied feminine hygiene products. What the hell is going on? Again, I want to extend my deepest apologies to you for the way that you've been treated while you've been in our jail. This is not normal. It is not normal, and, and I've never There's seen it happen. There's a lot of girls up in Fresh Rest that have on, like, similar clothes to what I had on, and they haven't given me uniform. I've already talked to uh, three people from the Department of Corrections. I can't explain the situation. They have assured me that it was a mistake and that it won't happen again. Um, but given the information that you're telling me, it, it makes me feel like that's probably not correct um maybe just what they're being told you should have come to court this is the, not the part about the clothing and all that but you, the fact that you're in custody is your fault you understand that right not to come to court we can't just let give people free passes all the time we're arrested the rest of this is completely inhumane and, and unacceptable and i'm very sorry that you had to go through this